Welcome to Piano Rhapsody, an amateur's guide to classical piano. This is a podcast where you follow my journey as an amateur piano player striving to play advanced level pieces one day, specifically Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, which is where the podcast gets its name. But unfortunately, I have a full-time job that has nothing to do with playing the piano, so I don't have hours a day to practice. Meaning, this goal is going to take some time. So until we reach it, Every week, we break down one of the pieces that I encounter along the road, ranging anywhere from the Baroque period all the way up to modern day. We'll explore the history surrounding the work and examine the music within. And hopefully, we all walk away a little more informed and appreciative of classical music. Then, we can build on this foundation so we can all tackle more difficult works in the future. This is episode 12.2. The second episode in an exploration of Volume 1 of Edvard Grieg's Lyric Pieces. Volume 1 is a collection of eight short solo piano works. Last week we talked about number 1, Arietta, and number 2, Waltz. Today we're going to continue right along with numbers 3 and 4. So let's roll right into it. The third piece from Volume Number 1 is called Watchman's Song. Grieg composed this work sometime before 1867, so this has absolutely no relation to Alan Moore's graphic novel Watchmen, or Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird sequel, Go Set a Watchman. This is pre-Atticus Finch and Dr. Manhattan. Watchmen were actually the answer to keeping the peace in society before organized police existed. Their shift typically started at 9pm and lasted until sunrise. A town bell would be rung to announce curfew, when everyone was expected to go back to their homes and clear the streets. Whoever remained outdoors during these indecent hours was considered a criminal, and it was up to the watchman to deal with them. Grieg revealed that he wrote this piece after seeing a performance of Shakespeare's Macbeth. And for those out there whose high school education failed them on this play, myself included, Macbeth is a tragedy about the downfall of political ambition and the pursuit of power. You know, think House of Cards in Shakespeare times. Curiously, there is not a watchman in the play, but there is, however, a porter character who serves as a doorman to Macbeth's castle and describes his job as the keeper to the gates of hell, which may explain one of the choices Grieg makes with this piece. Watchman's Song is actually very similar in form and idea to the previous piece we heard, Waltz, as it is also written in an ABA ternary form and utilizes the idea of parallel major and minor keys. For Waltz, we were in the keys of A major and A minor, but for this piece, we're in E major and E minor. The difference with this piece is that the order is reversed. Last week, in piece number two, the A section started things out in the minor key, and then switched to major in the B section. But for number three, Watchman's Song, the piece opens with an almost hymn-like, slow-paced, simple melody, which is in the key of E major.
Now, if we're using the title as inspiration, this music seems to paint a picture of a watchman's routine night patrol. A steady pace of strolling through the streets without much to see or much harmonic shifting. But then we encounter part B, which Grieg marks intermezzo, spirits of the night. And this is the part that might be inspired by Macbeth. While Macbeth may not contain a character concretely defined as a watchman, the Porter character invokes the idea of a gate to hell. And one of the lines that Macbeth is most well known for comes from a trio of witches. Double, double, toil and trouble. Fire burn and cauldron bubble. Just in time for Halloween, how convenient. This idea of darkness is not only illustrated through Grieg's colorful description, but also in a switch to the parallel minor key of E minor. A heavy reliance on the arpeggios and chords of the tonic minor key drives home this slightly spooky feeling. Who knows what that poor watchman saw out there in the darkness? Jack the Ripper? A ghost? Whatever it was, it seemed short-lived and pretty harmless. Because instead of a section of quick-moving 16th notes racing to an abrupt door slam at the end, we move right back into familiar territory with a repeat of the original hymn-like melody in E major. which completes our form of ABA and takes us right to the end of the piece in a safe sounding home chord of E major. Fresh in the spirit of Halloween, let's take a listen to this slightly programmatic piece that follows the patrol of a night watchman. From the first volume of Lyric Pieces by Edvard Grieg, this is number three, Watchman's Song.
Selection number four has a debatable translation, depending on its source. But it is the dance of some kind of small woodland mythological creature. Fairy dance seems to be the most common translation, but I also see elfin dance in some places. We're going to go with the fairy dance translation for this episode because, believe it or not, there's another piece called Dance of the Elves that I want to cover next month. Apparently elves can really move their feet. It must be all those Keebler cookies. The origin of the fairy myth dates back to Roman mythology, where the word fairy stems from the Latin word fata, meaning fate. Fairies were depicted as beautiful women possessing magical powers that would appear in homes where babies were born. Then they'd decide the newborn's fate and fly away. And if this scene reminds you of the beginning of Sleeping Beauty, you are not alone. It appears that the fairies from this classic tale are faithful to the traditional origin myth, even Maleficent. The original Greek and Roman myths do not dictate that all fairies need to be do-gooders. Some are actually mischievous, gleeful pranksters. Then in the late 13th century, the concept of fairies began to mix with religion throughout Europe, and it morphed into the concept of fallen angels. People started to believe that God threw fairies out of heaven because of their pride and ego which gave fairies a reputation for being creatures that were neither bad enough for hell, but not good enough for heaven. And as the centuries passed, belief in fairies has obviously plummeted. But there was an interesting case in England in 1917, where two young girls who were cousins claimed that they could see fairies. Their parents, of course, did not believe them, so the girls took pictures with their fairy friends. Apparently, this was convincing evidence for a lot of people at this time. Remember, this is back in 1917, before the days of Photoshop and digital picture editing. But it was eventually realized that these quote-unquote fairies looked an awful lot like the fairies from a book called Princess Mary's Gift Book. Many years later, in 1981, one of the girls, now an old woman, admitted to cutting out the fairies from the book and posing with them for pictures, adding yet another mark in the column for evidence of fairies not being real. But who knows? This piece of Grieg's is evocative of a group of fairies dancing in a forest. In order to achieve this sensation of small creatures dancing around, Grieg plays around with different piano articulations throughout the piece. Now, articulation isn't a concept that we've talked too much about in this podcast, but it's an essential element to any musical instrument. Articulation refers to the nature of how a note is played, controlling the length of the note by its attack and decay. In wind instruments, this is achieved by controlling the player's breath and tongue. In string instruments, articulation is controlled with bowing and picking. And in percussive instruments like the piano, articulation is differentiated by how the player strikes the keys. The piano is a bit more limited in terms of articulation than other instruments, because once a sound is produced by striking a key, that's pretty much it. We do have pedals, which helps us sustain notes for longer periods of time, but we can't really change their volume after the key has been played. 
There are, however, two basic forms of articulation that the piano can utilize to great effect. These are called legato and staccato. Legato means smooth and connected. Legato notes should blend right into each other, making it a seamless transition from note to note. Here's a basic C major scale played in legato style. Staccato is the opposite of legato. It means to play short, detached notes with space in between. Here's that same basic C major scale played in staccato style. Grieg's Fairy Dance utilizes this contrasting articulation to great effect. The general flow of the piece is that it alternates between a series of staccato chords and a legato melody line. These staccato chords help us imagine little fairy creatures dancing around in a forest, while the legato melody line recalls the mischievous nature of the fairies from myth. These articulated passages play off each other throughout the piece, until the end, where we get closing chords that are accompanied by grace notes. They're like tiny little puffs of air as the fairies fly away. So let's continue our little visit with the supernatural. This is Fairy Dance, number 4 from volume 1 of Grieg's Lyric Pieces. Well, that marks the halfway point for volume number one. Four down, four to go. Next week, we'll talk a little bit about Norway and the folk music that inspired Grieg. You can find the standalone recording of the pieces we discussed today directly in the podcast feed. Check out Piano Rhapsody on SoundCloud for all of the tracks from this podcast and more. You can find me on Twitter at Piano Rhapsody or email me at pianorhapsodypodcast at gmail.com. If you haven't already, please hit the subscribe button on your podcatcher and consider rating and reviewing. It's the easiest way to never miss a new episode, and it helps the podcast gain more visibility. 
Thank you as always for your time and your ears. And I'll talk to you next week.